Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. It's been a while since we last spoke about blockchain, so that's what you're going to hear about today. I am your host, Tasha Zaitz, and today you will hear a discussion with Leah Houston, emergency physician who has been following blockchain development since 2012 and now designed a solution that would empower doctors, make their credentialing easier, which would simplify transition from one hospital to the next one if one wished to switch jobs. HPAC is restoring agency and autonomy through the physician-patient relationship with self-sovereign digital identities and verifiable credentials. The key thing is that the solution is returning autonomy to physicians and eliminates third-party interference from the doctor-patient relationship. In this discussion, you will be able to hear how credentialing works in the United States, what are the power forces that are hurting healthcare, and why doctors and patients should regain control over their communication and treatment choices. Enjoy the discussion, and if you're new to the show, do check out other episodes as well on our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. We published quite a few series this year, a group of discussions with patients that went into entrepreneurship, a series of discussions with doctors and nurses who did the same. And in the upcoming weeks, you'll be able to hear a series about digital health in South America. As the focus of this podcast is to research how healthcare systems around the world are adopting technologies, you can find discussions with entrepreneurs and experts from various countries in the world. Last year, we published a series about digital health in Asia and Africa. Many topics to browse and listen. Now, to Leah Houston. Enjoy the show. And if you like the discussion, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. Every voice counts and helps other interested in digital health find the show as well. Thank you. Leah, hi. So tell me, how does an ER doctor get interested in blockchain? Well, I have always been interested in emerging technologies. I've always been interested in finance and one of my emergency physician colleagues and I used to occasionally chat about like what we were investing in. And he mentioned Bitcoin back in 2012. And, you know, he sent me this YouTube video and like I was watching it and I was, uh, you know, considering investing into it and getting into the weeds about it. Um, and then it crashed. And then I moved to Silicon Valley in 2015 and it was starting to accelerate again. And there I met a lot of technology entrepreneurs, uh, people in the blockchain space, and I became even more interested in it. Um, and, you know, specifically around its healthcare applications, you know, in general, when I was doing investing, it would either be real estate or something involving healthcare. I would learn about new pharmaceuticals, new devices, things that I understood. And so I learned a lot about the health records opportunities, uh, the supply chain opportunities, but I also paid attention to digital identity um, because, you know, I, I just realized that communication and voting and things like that was going to be really important in the future. So how did you then decide to design your own blockchain-based solution? How did it come to that? I actually had an experience where a hospital was using my professional identity 
and billing under my name and my professional numbers after I left the hospital, after I left the state. And that led the federal government in the United States to think I was practicing without a license because I was no longer licensed in that state. And as you can imagine, that created a huge problem for me. Uh, You know, on one hand, they think I'm practicing medicine without a license. On the other hand, I didn't even know that I was having, you know, bills under my name. And so eventually I was able to resolve that problem. And I did reach a settlement agreement with that hospital for the identity theft, which is exactly what it was, um, you know, on top of the Medicare, Medicaid fraud that came with it, the insurance fraud that came with it. And really the, the, the risk to my, my professional brand um, and the risk to patients as well, because they were, it was being documented that they were getting care from somebody that didn't even know that they existed. And so that experience made me realize that those digital identity solutions that I had learned about and thought about back in 2015 could be applied to healthcare, uh, where I, as the physician, am the primary source of truth regarding who I am, not the hospital that I work for. Maybe just to go a step back for those outside of the U.S., less familiar with the U.S. healthcare system, can you explain how the licensing work? You mentioned that you weren't licensed in that state uh, anymore when you moved. So what happens with the license and does that mean that you moved into a different state and work there as a doctor? Yeah, so I was in Florida. I moved to California and then I moved back to Florida. And while I was in California is when they were using my professional identity. When you moved from one hospital uh, to the other, what did you have to do? So just for us to understand how the credentialing system uh, that you're trying to fix also with your solution looks like at the moment. Right. So credentialing in the U.S. is a major problem. It's a major pain point. And that is the main uh, problem that we are solving with my company. Now, if you think about this problem, um, imagine yourself going to the airport uh, and you don't have a passport, but instead you have to bring copies of your birth certificate, your proof that you, um, you know, never had a felony. Uh, You have to bring copies of your vaccination records and you bring these pieces of paper with you. And then at the airport, somebody there has to make phone calls to your pediatrician to make sure that the vaccination's real has to make phone calls to the hospital that you were born in to make sure you were actually born. It's not a fake certificate. This is the process that doctors have to go through in the United States. And I think in in a lot of other places around the world in order to prove that they are who they say they are. This is the old school way of identity verification. And our healthcare system in the United States is so archaic that they are still using this old way of proving identity and proving credentials for doctors because they haven't yet adopted the new solutions and the new technologies that exist that can make that more streamlined. Um, You know, why is it that we can't just have essentially a passport that allows us to enter the hospital and start working and prove that we're qualified, that we went to medical school, we went to residency, we passed the exams, Why is it that they have to always keep going back and checking to make sure we actually went to medical school and checking all of these, um, you know, documents? And that process is a two to six month process in the U.S. 
making it very difficult for a doctor to move to a new hospital or change jobs or switch insurance networks. How does that look like in practice? Do you apply for a new job and still practice in the old facility during this whole credentialing process? Well, this is the problem. And this is why doctors in the U.S. are, in my opinion, being abused because the systems know it's hard to start a new job. They know all of this friction exists. So yes, if you do know that you're moving, you need to think six months to a year in advance or else you will not have a job when you move. I see. I looked at what kind of solutions are already out there to change the um, credentialing system. And uh, Hashed Health partnered with quite a lot of uh, organizations from Accenture to WellCare to national government services and others to create a uh, blockchain-based credentialing system called ProCredex, which actually raised quite a significant amount of money a few months ago, 3.5 million in seed funding. So I wonder, how do you differentiate from solutions like that? What's the difference? From what I know, they're going to the hospitals and they're getting the hospitals to essentially partner with them. And then those hospitals are then sharing the credentialing information. This, although it's a little better than the current situation that we have, it's still putting hospitals in control of my credentials as a doctor. It's still putting ProCredics in control of my credentials as a doctor. Uh, we at HPEC are putting the control directly into the hands of the practicing doctor. So, um, you know, it shouldn't be somebody else determining my professional destiny. It should be me. It shouldn't be somebody else controlling that. So although their platform is less centralized, um, in my opinion, it's not decentralized. What's your plan in terms of how do you convince the existing system to change? Do you think that's going to require a political action uh, mostly? or? So this is my favorite question to answer because we're actually not changing anything. Right now, in order for any system to share my credentials, as, as I mentioned, in order for the system that stole my identity to have stolen it, I had to give it to them first. So the system already requires me as the doctor to give them all of this information first. Um, that's a step that they have a critical dependence on. Without my participation, without my agreement, they don't have access to any of this information. Um, and so what we're doing is we're not changing Uh, their interaction with systems. We're not asking them to use a new system. Uh, we're just creating uh, an opportunity for them to request that verification in a different way. Um, and so, and making it in a more streamlined way. So essentially the back end of this, yes, it will be self-sovereign. Yes, it will be physician controlled. But the front end of this is going to be no different than the current system is for them. You mentioned that um, every credential needs to be verified. Would this mean that in your case, you as a doctor would just get verifications from the institutions that you need once and then that would be it because you would have this sort of a passport that you could use when moving to the new job? That's absolutely correct. So uh, when I ask for an institution to just verify my credentials, which 
um, is the law. They, they're required by law to respond to my request. If I paid for my medical license, they are required by law to respond to my request. So when I make that request, um, they can give me whatever, whatever um, proof that they give me, uh, but I will also give them an opportunity to write that proof onto a blockchain. Mm-hmm. Make it very easy, very streamlined. And when they write that proof onto the blockchain, they also simultaneously give me a digital copy of that proof in my digital wallet. Um, and now when I present that copy, that digital proof, uh, the person who's checking it can also check the blockchain in order to, to understand and know that this was actually something that was directly from my medical uh, licensing board or my medical school or my residency or whomever is the one who's issuing this credential. Um, and, you know, they are already building uh, functions like this. The Federal State Medical Licensing Board has FSMB. Uh, you know, you mentioned ProCredix who are building their own uh, blockchain of credential verification records. So, you know, these systems are already being built where credentials are being put on the blockchain. So uh, it's not going to be uh, any more difficult for them to, you know, verify it in this way as well. It's, it's rapidly being adopted. Awesome. You mentioned that you've been following blockchain for uh, a long time. I mean, yeah, if you've been in the field since 2012, you definitely know a lot about it. Development in healthcare is happening quite fast in the US, at least compared to other countries. What would you say are some of the examples of the solutions that you are uh, most optimistic about leaving uh, your solution aside for a minute? Um, so aside from the credentialing and identity solutions that I obviously I'm excited about. Supply chain, I think, is going to be very important, especially when it comes to uh, pharmaceutical. A friend of mine wrote a book called China Rx, Rosemary Ginsburg, and she talks about how the majority of the medications that we have are really mass produced in China um, and how there are people who have developed counterfeit medications and they've been pushed into the supply chain unknowingly. Uh, so how do you know if the blood pressure medicine you're taking is a counterfeit medication or not? By using the same supply chain solutions in other industries, the pharmaceutical supply chain can also detect and um, identify counterfeit me- medications, you know, as well as contamination or, you know, lesser, you know, lesser quality things. I also think uh, in general, we're going to start learning more about precision medicine and personalized health. I think that we're going to have a rapid understanding of a rapid acceleration in the understanding of our epigenetics as human beings and which genome sequences are being turned on and off in known and common chronic health conditions like diabetes and heart disease that are killing a lot of people, but rare genetic diseases, chronic conditions, you know. Do chronic pain patients, for example, have different genes that are turned on and off compared to others? And is there anything that we can do to target those specific genome sequences? I think being able to extrapolate that data on an individual basis is going to uh, be helpful. And I think that those kinds of solutions will be through federated data sharing um, uh, on decentralized uh, or distributed ledgers. 
So there's two ungrateful questions that journalists usually have. And that's, uh, so what are you doing and when is it going to be uh, available? So, you know, from that regard uh, and the general perspective on blockchain, um, given your broad knowledge about the technology, um, what are your expectations? When could these solutions be adopted and introduced more widely? I was just looking at a graph on LinkedIn today about um, why there was no widespread adoption of blockchain during COVID-19. And some of the arguments were that obviously emergency is not a good time for the implementation of an emerging tech and that technology is still immature, that there are still some uh, major challenges among them, the lack of cross-chain uh, and interoperability issues, um, lack of funding, so perhaps your thoughts regarding the current challenges from blockchain and when widespread adoption could be expected. If I remember correctly, that the Department of Health and Human Services actually did uh, recently do a blockchain implementation around coronavirus specifically. Uh, I believe it was Jose Ariada who uh, came out with an article recently saying that the Department of Health and Human Services is using blockchain for essentially tracking hospitalizations, who's being hospitalized, what's their hospitalization rate, the ages, uh, and all of those kinds of things. So HHS is using this. You know, the thing is, is that we don't know when blockchain is being used in the background, um, just like we don't know when JSON is being used in the background, unless we're, we're coders and we're going into the back end. So in my opinion, it is being adopted already. Right, right. Yeah, that's a, definitely a fair point. In a recent column, you wrote a lot about the intermediaries that exist in healthcare and that doctors don't need a middleman between them and their patients. And blockchain has an ability to make that uh, our new reality. That's a quote. So can you tell me a little bit more about the decentralization you would like to bring with HPAC and um, just how to uh, ensure that there's no uh, interference, uh, quote unquote, between the patient and the doctor. Absolutely. And I'm really glad that you asked the question in that way. And I want to make a very, very important point. If this is the only part of the podcast that you listen to, listen to this one point. The doctor-patient relationship is no longer private. You as a patient are being monitored. Doctors are being monitored. They're watching us. They're watching what I'm prescribing to you. They're watching whether you're filling that prescription or whether you're getting that MRI. They're looking at how long it's taking you to do those things. They're looking at how long it's taking me to tell you the results. We are now a part of an extreme healthcare surveillance model. And this was developed uh, really starting in 1996 with HIPAA, uh, which gave electronic health records the permission to share your protected health information. It gave them guidelines on the privacy around that sharing, but it essentially was, you know, creating an implied consent that you as a patient, as long as you filled out this one form before you hit your doctor's office, that they can share your your health information as long as it's de-identified. Um, 
And so in my opinion, it is my job as a doctor to restore privacy to the relationships that I have with my patient. And that is what my company aims to do. And we aim to do that through self-sovereign identity and and credentialing, uh, where I as a doctor have my digital identity and it plugs in directly to your digital identity as my patient. And when I document something about you, I keep my copy and you keep your copy. And it's kept between you and I. And the only way anyone else gets to look at that is if you, as the patient, give explicit consent. Can you box up and package certain parts of that data and share it, for example, with the hospital because you want them to understand certain things? Um, absolutely. Can you potentially sell your data and get a, you know, get a reward for sharing your data, especially as chronic pain patients and people who, um, not even chronic pain patients, but rare disease patients who have uh, really not a lot of privacy because if you have a disease that's one in a million, it's really pretty easy to figure out who you are if you're in a health system because there's not probably not very many people like you there. And so this is about privacy. Um, and it starts with identifying. It starts with identity. It starts with my identity plugging into your identity. I think this is a really, really important question that uh, as you described yourself, However, um, there's two things that I wonder here. And one is that when talking to doctors, they usually say that when patients are sick, the privacy concerns go out of the window because the number one priority is to get better. And if giving a consent to data means that somebody is going to treat you, you're going to sign that. So basically, that's one part of the question. And the second one is... To which extent do you as a doctor uh, have an impression that patients are even aware of their rights regarding to what they are consenting to when they come to the doctor's uh, office, to, to the hospital? Yeah, I mean, this, I think, is my whole point. I, I actually think both physicians and patients are unaware of the privacy and consent concerns that you know I and a few other people have. Um, in my opinion... Consent is not implied. Consent is um, to be explicit consent, where a patient understands what they're consenting to. Um, just like you can't, you know, rape a woman who's just didn't say no, you shouldn't be able to take a patient's data and share it unless they really understand who you're sharing it with and why you're sharing it and what you um, or anyone else will benefit from that. Um, And so, you know, in my opinion, that's this, your, you know, your question really outlines the whole purpose of what I'm trying to do. You know, I, I went into medicine to help people and, you know, I feel that these systems that they're enforcing upon me in my practice and how I document the interactions that I had with patients are putting a wedge between me and my patient because they're essentially forcing me Uh, to erode the trust that the patient gives me. Um, and yeah, so I, I do think that if you have a rare disease, you might want to share your information. You might want to, um, you know, be a part of a clinical trial. But I do think that, for example, if you're a part of a clinical trial with, um, you know, pharma unknown named company, 
then perhaps they need to give you a deep discount on any medications from their company. And any person that's involved in a clinical trial should get, you know, a deep discount or free medications from that company for life. Or perhaps um, they, you only want them to have certain parts of that information. Um, unless they want to pay you $100,000, you can name that price or you, you know, or you don't participate. I guess that's what my point. I think that, you know, there's a lot of push by health systems and pharma to incentivize doctors and patients to think, oh, this is for the greater good. And like, you know, if I don't share, I'm being selfish. Well, no, if you don't allow for explicit consent, you're being selfish. That's my opinion. Yeah, we could talk um, for ages about the um, medication prices in, in the US, which can change overnight just because of the free market. You yourself recently um, wrote on Twitter about a case where a dose of Tylenol cost $87, whereas uh, as far as I checked, a whole uh, bottle of 50 pills in the pharmacy costs $14. So that's just like one minor um, example. I would say probably 500 pills cost $5. Right, right. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely a huge discrepancy. So given that your startup is still very young, I do wonder, uh, did you get any feedback already from insurance companies, from the pharma industry, from other um, digital health solutions that solutions like yours would basically put out of business or make their work much, much harder, you know, because there's a lot of uh, business models at the moment that are running on anonymizing the hospital or the patient data or just using the data to to um, predict things and um, in case of insurance companies, decide whether or not they're going to cover something or not. So I think uh, I agree with you that this is a huge, huge, huge uh, issue that should not be allowed to exist. However, I do wonder how possible it is to fight against the existing strong forces. So in my opinion, the existing forces are really a house of cards. Um, after practicing across the U.S. and multiple different hospitals, probably close to 10 or 15 different hospitals, uh, I realized that the information that we are putting in these EHRs is junk. A huge amount of it is junk. It's dirty data. It's not valuable. Um, same thing with these digital health uh, apps that currently exist. You know, you walk around with your watch. It's tracking your breathing. Well, you know, yes, some of that information is accurate, but some of it's really inaccurate. So, you know, I don't necessarily think that uh, our solution is going to disrupt any of these business models, because I think these business models are really based on what's what I believe to be junk and dirty data. We're going to create real data, clean data, um, accessible, and truly uh, appropriately anonymized, pseudo-anonymized uh, when it's necessary. And, you know, we're going to put control into the hands of the patients and the doctors that care for them, uh, instead of these large behemoth, vertically integrated uh, health systems and EHR companies. When you say uh, dirty and clean data, do you mean uh, inaccurate in a sense that EHRs allow for a lot of copy-pasting, which then causes inaccuracy in individuals' medical record? Or what did you mean with these two terms? 
Yeah, that's part of it. I walk into a, you know, room 14 in the emergency department and I see that somebody has got an amputation below their right leg and I look on their health record and it says they have a left leg amputation and I can't delete it. And I look back and it's on every single record for the past three years, the wrong leg. Ouch. That's dirty data. That's happened before. <laughs> um, patients who have duplicative uh, diagnoses, hypertension, high blood pressure, and HTN, they're all the same thing. Why are they three times written in the, in the record? Uh, patients who were diagnosed with depression by some doctor just because they took, they were prescribed, they didn't even take an antidepressant, but they were prescribed an antidepressant once four years ago that they never actually took. They filled the prescription. They never actually took it. Now they have depression written on their, uh, you know, under their diagnoses on the EHR for the rest of their life. All of these are problems that any physician acknowledges as real or any clinician that looks at these EHRs and any patient who looks at their records, they're going to see inaccuracies like this as well. And that's what I mean by dirty data. When applying blockchain to this, isn't it even a little bit harder to to change these kind of mistakes because of the immutability of the blockchains and the fact that um, making changes is a little bit more complicated? Well, I think that because uh, uh, the duty will now be to the patient again and not to your health system, And when the physician acknowledges that this is now their record for them and for their understanding of the patient, and this is the record that they're going to now, um, you know, share with their physician colleagues in order to coordinate care with their with their patients, um, they're going to be much more careful about the accuracy. And I also think that when patients see their record, they're going to be very quick to point out the inaccuracies where. You know, if they're just trapped in these EHRs and the resident who took care of the patient for only one week did it and walked away and never saw the patient again, it's, it's le there's less accountability and less, um, you know, less of a sense of duty to be accountable. There's been a huge debate in the U.S. regarding whether or not the patients should see the doctor's notes. So that's just kind of out of curiosity. As an ER doctor, uh, what's your opinion about that? Because, Is there really a debate about that? Well, yeah, I know that there was uh, with digitization. First of all, um, it's very uh, important how you explain things to a patient because uh, medical jargon can be very quickly mi misinterpreted uh, by the patient if he's not, uh, he doesn't have a medical background. And the second thing is, If a doctor knows that the patient is going to read the notes, doesn't that kind of influence how he would uh, describe or assess the patient to a certain extent? Yeah, I mean, I think that in this kind of system, you can have your, so as a physician, you can have your own notes that aren't part of the permanent record that you can write to yourself. But I live in the camp that this information belongs to the patient um, and that the patient should have direct access to it. And if you think about the recent regulatory environment, the U.S. government just recently finalized the 21st Century Cures Act. And if anybody who's listening wants to look it up, it's items 4003 and 4004 talk specifically about interoperability and information blocking. And so, um, you know, when they are basically demanding that EHR companies uh, create an opportunity for interoperability between systems. And they're demanding that 
they do not block information from patients being able to receive it. Uh, so the hope is that patients will have uh, more swift and immediate access to their records with this new rule. And the even greater hope is that our system is designed with this rule in mind. So, um, you know, uh, I, I, I do understand that there are certain circumstances, for example, you know, there are some psychiatric conditions where patients are truly in denial um, or, you know, are truly a danger to themselves and things like that, where you do need to have private um, documentation of things. And those kinds of uh, discussions and solutions are going to happen among the people who actually take care of the patients. And hopefully the patients themselves will uh, develop advocacy consortiums around this so that they have their voices heard as well. But I think in general for 98 to 99% of conditions out there, there's no reason that a patient should not have access to all of their records. To talk a little bit more about uh, HPEC, let's talk about decentralization. Can you explain it a little bit uh, more? So how exactly are you planning to decentralize the system um, and how does that impact the already fragmented healthcare system in the US? It's extremely complex with health maintenance organizations, uh, ACOs, pharmacy benefit managers, and other actors apart from insurance companies uh, that are involved in the healthcare system. Yeah, I mean, you've definitely named a couple of those third parties that have wedged themselves um, into the system and, you know, seeking their piece of the pie. Um, you know, in my opinion, when it comes to the most important thing, uh, the operation that you need to get next week, um, whether or not you got your chemotherapy, uh, whether or not you were treated for this illness or that illness, all of those discussions, every single one of the most important discussions happen between doctor and patient. It's the surgeon that does the surgery who documents what happened in the OR. It's the psychiatrist who explains why they've increased or decreased your medication. Um, it's your primary care doctor who is having the discussion with you about whether or not you should be immunized for this or that. All of these things are done by the doctor. Without the stroke of a doctor's pen, you don't get surgery, you don't get admitted to the hospital, you don't get an x-ray, you don't get anything. Um, and so... If we put that into the hands of the actual people who are actually doing it, um, and those people are the ones who are responsible, it makes a lot of sense to me. And that's all we're doing. Uh, we're, just, we're just creating a method of secure and direct communication about what actually happened only with the parties that need to know. And everybody else can ask permission to see the information if they want to see it. And they can be given permission or they cannot be given permission. Very simple. How many doctors are already a part of your organization? So what are, at the moment, the biggest challenges uh, that you are facing? Did COVID in any way influence your development? Wow. Okay, three questions at one. Um, so we have, <laughs> we have uh, a following of, combined following of about 50,000 across social media, and I'm sure that there's overlap with that. We have a Facebook group with over 1,200 doctors We have um, that was recently made like a month and a half, two months ago. We have an email list with, I think, a little over 4,000 people. Most of them are physicians. Some are not. 
Um, and, you know, we have, I think, over 100 investors now. Um, and investors are also advisors and give feedback on the technology. And there's also a lot of people who are contributing to feedback on how to build the technology and what should and shouldn't be included. Um, and, you know, the people who are on our email list, many of them are participating in that discussion. So even if you're not an investor, you still can invest your time to make sure that this is built for you. Um, so that's who's currently following us now. Our challenges, you know, where there are challenges with coronavirus, I actually, you know, think coronavirus really exposed and uncovered a lot of the problems that we're trying to solve. And so I think that in combination with some people having a little more time on their hands, people have taken the time to learn a little bit about this. Um, but that is one of the main challenges that this isn't just a, you know, we're, we have a very complex system, as you mentioned. Uh, the solutions that are going to solve this complex system aren't easy to understand solutions. Uh, you know, our method of putting control back into the hands of the doctors and patients through self-sovereign identity, through direct secure communication, through privacy-preserving tools like what we're building, um, it's kind of on the edge of reality for people. So that is also a barrier because the concept of privacy is really something that's been abandoned by both doctors and patients. People have kind of given up on privacy. But you know, it's a discussion that's starting to be had and starting to be paid closer attention to, especially because, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the regulatory environment is moving more towards personal data ownership and privacy. Um, you know, GDPR, California Data Protection and Privacy Act, and, you know, as I mentioned, the 21st Century Cures Act. It sounds a little bit like uh, trying to mobilize doctors in a new way. Uh, almost reminds me of, I don't know, not, not exactly a union, but just another uh, organization for, apart from the uh, American Medical Association that's kind of trying to bring a little bit more hope again, I guess, to the doctors. I don't know. It's, it's just based on the whole discussion, it sounds to me that there's a certain apathy towards the futility of possibility of the change of the healthcare system in the U.S. I, I do call this a digital physician's guild, you know, because armed with your identity as a doctor and being able to directly communicate with your colleagues, you're no longer tethered to whatever insurance company you are in network with or whatever hospital system you work for. You now have uh, the power to be independent in your conversations and discussions with patients. And in my opinion, that's where uh, the the improvement in outcomes will come from. It'll come from doctors being free to care for their patients without being monitored and surveilled the way that they currently are. And patients feeling free to share the truth with their doctors again, without being worried that their insurance company is going to deny them something. Or, you know, if they get a prescription for an opiate, now all of a sudden they're going to be monitored and, you know, they might be denied pain medication in the future. And uh, what's really happened is an extreme assault on uh, the profession of medicine and on the doctor-patient relationship. And this is a tool to uh, reverse some of that damage. Do you think that you could be opposed by the insurance companies and the healthcare institutions that you work in? So I just kind of imagine that a healthcare institution could say, no, you can't use this tool as a doctor because this is the way the system works and you know we can't allow you to work differently and uh, block 
us the access to the data? I mean, this is a really interesting question. In my opinion, what most people understand to be insurance is not truly insurance right now. Insurance is meant meant for catastrophes. And insurance is supposed to pay a certain amount for a certain catastrophe, regardless of who it's being paid to. Right now, insurance companies are denying payment to doctors because they're out of network and they're making those networks more narrow. Why is it that a patient can't choose the doctor that they want to go to for their surgery? Why is it that we're seeing an increase in surprise bills and an increase in prior authorizations and denial of payment for services? This is not insurance. I personally don't care if the current systems that call themselves insurance like us or don't like us or want to work with us or not, because in my opinion, after talking to thousands of physicians, physicians are really done with insurance companies. They're not really interested in working with them anymore because they're refusing to pay them for their services. So why would we? I think that basic care should be paid for out of pocket. I think people who are in need should be a part of networks that will be getting aid from their local governments and communities. I don't think that the current insurance in its current form is very valuable to either doctors or patients. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you like the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. This is the fuel for the show and helps others interested in digital health find the show as well. To browse through past episodes and find more about the podcast, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. And of course, stay tuned. <laughs>